we know that the Bible clearly teaches that faith, that is saving faith in Jesus Christ, comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. This means that reconciliation with God and forgiveness of sin and being adopted as children of God and having eternal life is not possible apart from hearing the gospel message. Now, Jesus made clear back in the, um, the parable of the sower that, that not everybody who hears the gospel will be saved. Uh, they won't hear the gospel because they won't receive it by faith. They instead will ultimately reject it because they have a hard heart or they have a shallow heart or they have a crowded heart, crowded for the love and the things of the world. But he says some will be saved because their hearts are fertile. When they hear the word of God, when they hear the gospel, they're going to receive it into themselves and they are going to receive it by faith and they are going to produce uh, fruit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, which will be evidence that they were truly born again. Now, really listening and listening carefully is not only important for salvation, it's also important for the believer. It's important for the process of sanctification. How can we ever grow in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ if we don't follow his teachings, if we don't obey his commands? Simple answer to that is you can't. It's impossible. And because of this reason, now Jesus chooses to kind of double down, if you will, and he teaches a second parable concerning how we are to receive and hear the word of God. Now, the parable that we talked about last week, which was the parable of the sower, that was easy. And the reason it was easy was because Jesus told the story and then he literally interpreted it line by line. So it wasn't hard to understand what it meant. This one, mm, a little bit different, different. This one, he tells us the parable, but he doesn't tell us the spiritual meaning. So that means you and I have to do the hard work of trying to interpret it in light of what the truth is in this text, which makes it even more difficult to do, obviously. So we have to be even more dependent upon the Holy Spirit because spiritual things are spiritually discerned. So there are two things in this parable that we want to see this morning concerning how we ought to hear the word of God. Two things we ought to know. First of all, we put into practice what you hear. When you hear the word of God, we must put into practice what it is that we are hearing. Look at verse 16. The Bible says, No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Now, in typical parable fashion, what Jesus does is he takes a very ordinary, everyday, common story, and he tells it. It's not hard to follow. This particular story is about a lamp, is what it's about. This is uh, about specifically lighting a lamp. This is something that his audience would have done literally thousands of times. The type of lamp that he's talking about is a, is a terracotta lamp. It would have been made of clay, would have had a little handle on one side, a little spout on the other. They would have filled it with oil, and they would have put a wick inside of it in order to light. And, and then they would take this, this lamp once lit, and then would actually put it up on a stand. Now, this isn't like an independent lamp stand. This is really would be placed in the middle of the room. There would be a beam hold, holding up the roof with a little platform out to the side, and that's where they would place this particular lamp. Or in a stone that might be uh, jettisoned out of the wall, they would place it on that high and above for everybody to see. That's the purpose of the lamp. You display it in a way that it will bring light to the entire room. Now, that's what you do with a lamp. Then he says there's things that you don't do with a lamp. 
What you don't do with a lamp is you don't put it in a jar. Now, don't think in a glass jar because you'd be like, well, that just makes sense. You don't want somebody to get burned. You put it inside the jar so nobody gets burned. Don't think that way, all right? We're talking about a clay jar, something that you'd put in, put a lid on. And if you did that, no light would be able to be seen. All the oxygen would be used up, and it would just snuff its way out. So it would be purposeless for you to put it in that particular jar. And he also says you don't put it underneath a bed, Again, don't think about your sleep number bed, all right? Don't think in terms like that. It wasn't raised up off the ground. He's not talking about sliding under the bed where all the dust bunnies are. He is saying don't put a roll mattress over top of it. That's what a bed would have been. It would have been a bed that you just kind of rolled up. And so if you put that over that lamp, what would you do? It would ultimately be crushed and be absolutely worthless. No, you put it up on the shelf for all to see. Now, the question is, that's, well, that's the earthly story. What is its heavenly meaning? And I think to really get to the root of this, we have to understand what is the significance of the lamp? What is the significance of the light? And so if we understand that, then we may understand better the point that Jesus is driving home. There's a little bit of a problem, and that is for us, yes, light is significant throughout the word of God. The problem is it's significant because it points to different things. For example, sometimes the light in the New Testament refers to Jesus Christ himself. When you look in John chapter 1 and verse 8, when John the apostle begins to speak about John the Baptist, he says he himself was not the light, but he bore witness to the light. So he's talking about Jesus being the light of the world. And so now, then, then that speaks of Jesus, but in another place, Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5 speaks actually of his believers and their testimony being a light to the world. He said, you are the salt and the light of the world. That's right. And then, in, then we read in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16, and the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So the question is, what does this lamp and light represent? Does it represent Jesus or does it represent his believers? Well, I would suggest that there might be a third and even better alternative. That this light that he is lit, this lamp and light that is, is being lit, that, that it actually represents the word of God. I think he's using it in the same way that the psalmist used it in Psalm chapter 119 and verses 105. There he says, Thy word, you know it, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So I think within the context, the best understanding here is that he's talking about the word of God. The whole time he's been saying, you be careful how you hear the word of God. Now he's talking about the word of God. And if that be the case, what I think he's saying is this. You must use the word for its appropriate use. The word of God has appropriate use, and that use is not primarily to put on a coffee mug. Its primary use is not to entertain us. It is not primarily for you and I to be really good and brag at Trivial Pursuit. It's not primarily there to be able to do some kind of like uh, yarn thing and then put the scripture on the yarn and then put it on a, some of you have this, not judging, but and then put it and frame it up on a wall somewhere. That's not the primary purpose for it. The primary purpose of the word of God is to take it, hear it, put it into practice to do what the word is calling us to do so that we may become more like Jesus Christ for the glory of God. So this is what I think his point is. He's driving this home. Did you know that one of the saddest things in all of the world, at least in my heart, in my mind, 
is the fact that as we gather together to hear the word of God preached this morning, that there are literally millions of people around the world with no copy of the word of God. No copy of the word of God in their own language. They can't gather together like you and I do. Oftentimes we just take this for granted. They can't minister to one each other through the truth of the word of God because the Bible is not in their heart language or they don't have a copy at all. Uh, they, can't, they can't sit and be in Bible study by themselves. They can't pass it on to their kids. That is horribly sad. But what is even sadder is that cultures like our own, which is completely saturated with the word of God, more than we could ever imagine, and they do nothing with the word of God. That's even more sad than not having it at all in some ways. Let me give you, let me, let me say this, is this morning as we come together, really what we need to be able to note and in, in ask is, is not, are we believers in Christ? That's not really the question. And that's what everybody keeps asking. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? And most people, usually in the South, because we're good Southern people, yeah, I believe in Jesus. That's right. But that's not really the question. It's not the question that Jesus is asking. He's not asking even, do you know the word of God? What he's asking is, do you do what the word of God says? That's how we know whether we're in the faith or not. I wanna, I wanna give you an example of something because oftentimes too many Christians on a daily basis, even after the service, will hear the word of God, but instead of living it out, will hide it away and it'll be no use to them. Let me give you an example of how this works almost week in and week out. One of the greatest themes that we find in the word of God is the, is the theme of God's forgiveness towards sinners. Would you agree? I mean, that is really the major theme of the whole Bible from beginning to end. What a glorious and wonderful story. But it begins all the way in the very beginning. Here's God. He creates perfectly perfect man, perfect woman, and this perfect garden. And then he goes, hey, guys, you can do basically whatever you want. Just, just don't eat of that tree over there. The one tree, just don't eat of it. But you can eat anything else in the garden. And so they sit there and go, hmm, I don't know. This tree looks actually good. No, I said no to that tree. I said, yeah, but it looks really good. Let me just try it out. And so they go eat it. What happens? They sin against God and they die. They spiritually die. Death enters in at that particular point. So from the very beginning, in the first three chapters, we already recognize man's need for the forgiveness of God. And we know he needs to be forgiven. Here's why. Because death entered in. And in order for God to be able to cover and forgive them of their sins, he took the life of some animals in order to clothe them. So we see sin. We see what he has to do to forgive that sin. And then the rest of the Old Testament, that, that's, that's a truth in a microcosm. And then all of a sudden, it's played out through the, old, through the whole Old Testament. Instead of giving one command, now what God does is he gives a number of commands. He gives 10 commandments. Then he gives even more commands. He has a whole book on commands on what the people should do and should not do. And what do the people keep doing? They keep breaking them. So then God comes up and he gives the people a way for those sins to be forgiven in essence through the sacrificial system. Are y'all tracking with me at all? All right, two of them, I'll take it. So, they track, so all these animals are constantly being killed because of their sins in order to cover their sins, pay for their sins, and for them to what? To be forgiven before God. And then through the rest of the Old Testament, here it is. Obey me. Okay, they disobey. Do this, and they do that. Don't do this, and they end up doing it over and over and over again. It keeps going back. The people keep failing God, disobeying him, and their need for forgiveness until finally forgiveness comes in the beginning of the New Testament. 
in the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus Christ comes on the, uh, on the scene. And now we realize that those animals from all the Old Testament were never able to satisfy the wrath of God towards us. They could only pacify his wrath towards us for a period of time. But then Jesus Christ who came, who was fully God and fully man, was the perfect sacrifice. And as he died upon the cross, what ultimately happened? He made forgiveness possible for all those who would repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And so he says to us, hey, come unto me. All you who are weary, heavy laden, take my yoke upon you, learn of me. In other words, you come unto me, you put your sins on me, I'm gonna put my grace on you and you're gonna be good to go. And so then we find out through the word of God that this happens. We find out that he forgives us completely. Our sins present, past, future. He, he, he what, past, present, future. Let me do that. Let me get my hand motions right with my words. And so what he finds is he's got to forget. Then we're even told that our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers them no more. This is glorious, is it not? Then he tells us, this is what I've done for you. I've forgiven you of all of your sins. You no longer have to have any fear. You will forever be my child. Even when you mess up, my grace is sufficient for you. Do you hear the story? This is the story. And then he sits there and goes, oh, but there's something I want you to do. I just want you to do. From all the grace and the forgiveness I've given you, what I want you to do is I want you to bend that outwards to everybody else. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to forgive those who sinned you, sinned against you. Ephesians 4, 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Okay. Lord, I know you forgive me, but forgiving other people. I mean, that, that, that's tough to do. I mean, I have to forgive them of so much. I did so little against you. Not, not really. So Jesus sits there and what, he's, what he does, he makes sure that he's correcting all of this. The first person asks, well, how many times should we forgive people? We're supposed to forgive. And so Peter, who was so spiritual and always saying things that he shouldn't, he goes, I got the answer. Seven. We should forgive seven times. <laughs> Guys, what do you think of that? Seven times. <laughs> And, and everybody is so impressed. Ooh, seven times. And he, Jesus sits back and he goes, no, I tell you seven times 70. And don't calculate that. He's just meaning an infinite number of times that we are to forgive other people. So people sit back and go, man, that's rough. He goes, but you know what? Somebody in the crowd is then going to be thinking to themselves, well, wait a minute. What if I can't forgive them? What if they did to me was so horrendous and so terrible and they've sinned against me with such a horrendous way? that there's no way that I could possibly forgive. And then Jesus ends up giving the parable of what we call uh, the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18. And here's a man who has an unimaginable debt that he could never ultimately pay back. And the servant has mercy on him and he ends up paying, him, ends up, ends up paying off his debt. He forgives him of his entire debt. And then the same man that was just forgiven of so much immediately turns around and what does he do? He goes to another servant of his who, who owes him nothing, enough money maybe for a Coca-Cola. And what does he do? He sits him, he grabs him and he puts him in prison. And the whole point of the story is no matter how much you believe that you have been sinned against, no matter how horrible in your mind or how, how, how broad that sin might be, it's never nearly what is compared to our sin that Jesus Christ has forgiven for us. But then at this particular point, some people sit back and say, well, I just can't do it. I will never forgive that person in spite of all that Jesus has done, in spite of all the teaching that we have. And then Jesus takes off the gloves at this point, And he gets a little bit harsher here, some harsher words and then he tells him in Matthew chapter 6, verse 15, he says, know this, 
that if you do not forgive your brother, your heavenly father will not forgive you. Now, this could mean one or two things. It could mean, in essence, it could be a, a warning to a believer in Jesus Christ and him saying, if you don't forgive the person next to you, you can't have right fellowship with God. In other words, you're not gonna learn from him. You're not gonna grow in him. You're not gonna experience the joy of God if you're harboring this unforgiveness. Or it could mean, and this seems to be when you take this verse and find other teaching, like in 1 John and in James, that forgiveness is the evidence that a person has truly been born again, is their capability of being able to forgive other people. And he's in warning saying, if you do not forgive, you yourself are not truly a born again believer in Jesus Christ. That's hard. Now, here's the interesting thing. I don't think I taught the majority of you anything new since I started all the way back in Genesis, did I? Most of you knew that Eve blew it. And then, I mean, I'm sorry, that Adam and Eve blew it back in the garden, right? You, are, you, are you with, did you all know that story? Yeah. And you know the story of them being clothed by God? And you know the story of God giving them all of these commands and then breaking every one of them? And you know the story of the sacrificial system? Do you know this? And then you know Jesus came to forgive us of our sins? And then you know that Jesus says it's an act of worship and a demonstration that you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Bend that forgiveness outwards. How many times? Every time. Who should we forgive? Is, is any sin too great? No, it shouldn't be too great. And then he even warns us and puts the fear of God in us that if we don't forgive, then we're probably not in the faith to begin with. And we all understand that. You've sat in church, you know the stories, and still you sit here today refusing to forgive somebody who has hurt you. That's exactly how this works. And it works this way week in and week out. And somebody is sitting here, somebody did something to them, 30 years ago or 20 years ago or five minutes ago and they refuse to forgive and they are anguished in their heart. They're not used to God anymore. They're bitter. They're crotchety curmudgeon. Nobody wants to be around them. All why? Because they just won't submit themselves to the word of God and forgive. And this is just one example and then we could go all the way through life and the love of money and the love of things and sexual sins and the lack of trust in God. And we could go all the way through the word of God from beginning to end, all of this teaching. But there are so many Christians who simply will not put into practice what Jesus Christ has said. And this is what he's warning us against. There's a second thing. And there's only two points to this message. So rejoice in something. All right, number two, <laughs> use, use what you hear or lose it. Use what you hear or lose it. Look at verse 17. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Now, there are some scholars that I respect well have actually interpreted this in saying that Jesus was referring to the messianic secret. Now, let me just explain. Basically, what they suggest is that when Jesus was here on earth and he was in his, his, his earthly ministry, that there were many times that he wanted to kind of hide from people, from the vast population of who he truly was, his true identity. And this seems to be right, right? So there's times when, when a demon will spot who Jesus is and he'll turn to him and he'll say, you're the son of God. And he'll say, be quiet. And he'll say, quiet, silencio. And that's for our Spanish speaking group right there. And he'll say, be quiet. And then at that particular point, he'll be quiet. And then later on, he'll heal somebody and he'll do something miraculous, like raise somebody from the dead. And then he tells them, hey, I know I raised you from the dead, but don't tell anybody. Which is really, really interesting, right? Jesus raised us from the dead. He told us to say something. We say nothing. 
He tells them not to say anything when they come back to life and they can't help but to say something. And so here they are and, 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 you, and you see this kind of idea and this tension of, of, of speaking and, and, and knowing. And, and so what, what do we do here in the midst of all of this? Uh, how do we, do we, is it really the messianic secret? Because later on he'll say, and what they're saying in verse 17 is that what he's saying now is, hey, look, they, it was secret, but now you need to go and tell. And that's what he's referring to in verse 17. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. It's no longer a secret. That's what they say this is. But to me, that doesn't seem to match up with the context. He's not talking about going out primarily and be a witness. What he's primarily speaking of is what? Is listening to the word of God and putting it into practice, actually living it out. So in the clearest, easiest sense of what he's saying, I think what he's saying is simply this, is look, if you, if, if you don't use what I have, you're ultimately going to lose it. We're gonna see how this uh, is unpacked in just a moment. Uh, but but here's, here's, here's the question. What does he mean that these things that are done in darkness are gonna to come to light? Most scholars say it at least means that Jesus is talking about the end time judgment. That at the end time, when all is said and done, when all in this life is said and done and God is ready to judge the world, there's gonna be a final judgment. And for example, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 14, it says God will bring every deed into judgment and every secret thing, whether good or evil. Romans 2 verse 16 tells us that there's a judgment coming and that God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Philip Ryken says that Jesus certainly in verse 17 is suggesting that what we don't do with the word of God is going to be revealed or what we do to the, with the word of God will be revealed at the end judgment. Here's what he says. On that awesome day, God will hold us accountable for every word that we have ever heard, that it will all come out. All the things that we have done and all the things that we have left undone will be exposed. And if we fail to do what God has said in in his word to believe the gospel, for example, or to keep the commandment or to fulfill our calling in the world, then eventually this will come to light. He says, how people listen to the word of God ultimately at the end time, no matter how much they try to hide it, is going to be revealed. For those who have trusted the word, believe the word, practice the word, good news is gonna be revealed. For those who have not and quench that in their heart and not truly received it, even though they have convinced all of their friends that they're born again and even convinced themselves that they're born again, it will come to light that they never were truly born again. And he will say, depart from me for I never knew you. That is rough. But that's certainly what God, Jesus, at least has in part in mind. But I gotta feel like there's something else involved in that, don't you? I think when he says that it will be revealed, I don't think we have to wait to the end time to, for it to be revealed. Who is putting into practice the word of God or not? Do you? I think it's not only exposed in the end, I think it's exposed in the present as well. I think about here, the here and now. If I were just to read a passage of scripture, Ephesians 6.1, like we do every week, we begin to exposit it. And Ephesians 6.1, children obey your parents and the Lord for this is right for this is good. At that moment, guess what begins to happen? The word of God goes forth. The Holy Spirit begins to drive it in the heart of young people. And all of a sudden it is revealed in their heart of whether they're obeying that or disobeying that. In the life of their parents, they begin to look at the evidence of their child and what they're doing and really can determine justly of whether they're obeying that or not obeying that. 
We can go to just back up just a chapter to Ephesians chapter 5 or thereabout. And, and all of a sudden, we can talk to the ladies, the godly ladies in this church and say, hey, the Bible says that you are to submit to your husband as the church submits to, to God. Or to, yeah, to God. Or Christ to, to the church. And at that point, in, in the heart of that woman, she's sitting there going, Yeah, I think so. I think I'm doing that. Or no, I'm not. Maybe even in the heart of her husband, but mainly because he's hard-hearted and he's wicked. He's probably saying, no, she's not living up to this. That's probably what's happening in his heart. And then we turn back to the man and we say likewise to the man, hey man, word of God is telling you that you were to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And then not only is he able to judge in his own heart, but his spouse is right next to him, is being able to tell, is that obvious or not? His children is next to him. Is that obvious or not? Is he actually leading his home? Is he loving mom in this particular way? It doesn't have to wait until the end to be determined and whether you and I are putting into practice the word of God. People see it every day in our lives, whether we are or whether we're not. Let me, um, let me give you one more example of this if I can. One more example would be the command that God gives us that he tells us that we are supposed to, that he is to be the priority for us over all else. Would you admit that's what the Bible teaches? That's what, that he is supposed to be numero uno. There we go for our Spanish speaking crowd again. There's a theme going on here, but anyway, and so, so we understand that. So it, it has got to be something that we understand. Now, how do we know that? We know it first of all, for the very first command that God gave us, thou shalt have no other gods before me. And then Jesus doubles down on this when somebody asks him, what is the greatest commandment? What is the most important commandment of all? And he says to love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know what that means? Your greatest affection should be reserved for God, his purposes, his law, his work above everything else. And then when you and I, after learning that and reading it and understanding it, then we end up going home that later day And then we're like, you know, we really need to do something about all of that we know that God is calling us to. But then we find ourselves saying something like this. You know, I would love to gather for the church more often. You know, I would love to serve. I'd love to use my gifts. I would love to study the Bible more. I would love to share the gospel with other people. But to be honest with you, I'm just too busy. I just have too much work. I've just got way too many things going on, too many kids, activities. I almost said too many kids, that would be bad. How many kids, activities, too many sports, too many vacations. I've just got too much going on for me really to do all of these things that God has clearly told us to do in the word of God. But understand, beloved, that these are not excuses. They're indictments. And they're either indicting God or they're indicting you. If they're indicting God, what we're saying is, God, you are not a good God. You have not provided what we need. We need more hours in the day. We needed 30, not 24, in order to get all the stuff done that you are commanded us to be able to do. And the truth is, if he gave us 30, we would just kind of waste away those 30 hours as well on the things that our heart most loves. And so it's either an indictment on God or it's an indictment on ourselves that we find that we are actually poor stewards of the time that he has given us. And it's because we have submitted our hearts not to God, but to the many gods of our heart. And so this is how this works. Every generation leaves some theological mess for their children to work through. You understand that, right? Like we could look back at the generation before us and we're like, man, this is where they got it wrong. And then we like to tell everybody how they all got it wrong. Just know that your generation is coming up behind you and they're gonna tell you what everything that you did wrong. So be gracious, right? 
And it is true. I think that this happens quite often. Let me tell you what it was for me kind of growing up. To me, I felt like I kind of grew up in a more legalistic home. Any, anybody kind of feel that way? I, when I talk to people, they're like, man, just kind of seem more legalistic. I mean, my parents actually told me that I had to go to church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Tuesday night visitation, Wednesday night Bible study. If we were washing cars at the church on Saturday, we were washing the cars at the church on Saturday at the church, right? This is what we were doing. And what happens is, is sometimes we can look back at that and go, man, they were just so legalistic about everything. In other words, they were basically telling me that I couldn't really love God and I wasn't a true Christian if I didn't do all these things. But if you really look back, most of the time, they weren't saying that at all. Maybe they did, but many times they never said that. My parents never said that to me. But that's what I interpreted. Why? Because I was guilty of it. I hadn't really come to faith in Jesus Christ at that particular point. What I had done is I was trying to earn my own salvation. And then I felt guilty when I wasn't in church thinking that God wasn't going to be happy with me, that he wasn't going to be receptive of me. But do you know why they were doing it? They were doing it because Jesus Christ was number one. They were doing it to earn their salvation. They were doing it because they wanted to be a part of God, what God was ultimately doing. And now for many of us, I, I, I came to the point where I realized, you know what? This isn't even their fault. This is my fault. I've been trying to live by my own works and I'll never be accepted by God by my own works, only through the completed work of Jesus Christ. And so I repented of that and began to change all of that. And so what happens is when this happens, many of the times the pendulum swings for the next generation. Would you agree? So if the former generation is very legalistic, we swing the pendulum and what pendulums usually do is they swing too far. And so now we're free. We don't have to come to church all the time. We don't have to serve all the time. We don't have to do all this stuff. So what now is we're actually free now so much that we are actually free from the very basic commands in which God has written in his word. That's not freedom, that's bondage. Are you tracking with what I'm saying at all? It seems like the first congregation did. Maybe you're not, I don't know. I always tell them you're smarter than them, but they don't, I don't know what the disconnect is. I'm sure that, that what type of theological mess, I'm not sure what kind of theological mess that we might leave behind for our children. I hope very little. However, I do know that parents that do not make a priority of gathering together with other believers, using their gifts to edify and build up the church or practice what they hear preach rarely have children that do the same. They usually don't do it either. So what happens if we take the word of God other than maybe jacking our children up from what it means to be fully committed to God? What else happens? Well, the word of God tells us in verse 18, he says, take care then how you hear for to the one who has more will be given and from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. So this is very simple. He says, if, if you learn the word of God, you study it and you apply it, I'm gonna give you more understanding of the word I'm gonna let you see more of myself. I'm gonna let you see more of my goodness. I'm gonna let you see more of my sufficiency as you submit yourself to the word of God. He says, but if I give you something and you don't use it, you don't apply it, I'm not gonna give you any more. In fact, I will actually take away what it is that I have already given. Now that seems harsh. Let me try to explain it this way. Since there's, there's a Spanish speaking theme going on, let me give you an illustration. Maybe that's where it was coming from. And uh, let, me, let me give this to you. Some of you have already heard this before. Forgive me for this. But when I was in Mexico years ago, this was in seminary, I was there and uh, we went on a Mexico mission trip and we were going through this town and we were supposed to be inviting people to this revival that was going to be taking place. So I was really, really excited about it. And I said, they said, hey, let's pair up in groups. And we had one person left over and I go, hey, no problem. 
I, I'm fine. I, I can handle my own. Uh, I, I took uh, Spanish one and two 12 years ago <laughs> in high school. I'm completely fine. I'm, I'm completely okay. And so I went off on my own and started just kind of meeting people and started using the depth of my Spanish, like hola, you know, those sorts of things. And, and so I sat down, I remember seeing this young man and I was trying to pass out some different forms to try to get them kind of to, to come to this thing. And I saw this little boy and he was eating some ice cream. I thought, hey, I'm just gonna engage with him and, you know, just kind of like the woman at the well kind of scene here. And so went up to him and I go, hey, in Spanish, in Espanol, I said, hey, I'm hungry, like that. And he just ran off with his ice cream cone, just ran off. <laughs> well, I was a little bit confused because I'm thinking to myself, this poor boy doesn't even know his own language. It's so sad. <laughs> so I went back to the missionary and I began to talk with the missionary. And I basically said, hey, look, um, I don't know what happened. Was there something culturally wrong with telling somebody that I'm hungry in this culture? And they go, no, not at all. I go, well, apparently this young man was offended by me saying that I was hungry. And he goes, well, what did you say to him? So I told him in Spanish what I said. And he goes, Mike, you didn't say that I'm hungry. You said, I want a man. <laughs> I mean, it, it makes sense now. In hindsight, <laughs> I understand the response for, for good reason. But following and understanding the word and applying it to life is very similar. If you don't use it, you lose it. And so oftentimes I hear Christians and I'm gonna talk about the, uh, and I'm getting into the older generation. Uh, I'm certainly not middle-aged because I'd be a hundred and uh, that's probably not gonna happen. But the idea is, is the older that I get and I talk with people, some Christians, all they ever talk about is what they did 10, 20 and 30 years ago for Jesus. You know, we used to serve, we used to be in Bible study, we used to do this, we used to do that. And you don't even have to be older to do that. And somehow, sir and ma'am, you are resting on all you did so long ago. And most of that, you don't even have anymore. And oftentimes what happens is those individuals later on in life begin to really struggle and hardships begin to come. And they go back to be able to reach some truth that they once knew and once had, and it's no longer there. And they begin to flip-flop in their faith and they begin to fade away because they did not continue steadfastly in the word of God, knowing it, listening to it, and applying it. So the Bible says that if we don't use it, it will be taken away. Now, let me, let me make sure, because a lot of this sounds a lot like do better preaching. A lot of this sounds like, Mike, you're just saying, if we don't do this, then we're not born again. And it almost sounds like we have to do stuff to be saved. Please understand that is not what I'm saying at all. In fact, to prove it, let me look at this last little section. Look at verse 19. We'll close with this. It says, then his mother and his brother came to him, but they could not reach him because of the crowd. And he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing uh, outside desiring to see you. But he answered them. Now look, look at the connection of the theme of the two parables plus this. He says, my mother and brothers are those who what? Hear the word of God and do it. Jesus at this particular point, they're coming and I don't know why they wanna get a hold of him. In the, other, in the other gospels, synoptic gospels, it seems as though they think he's crazy and they wanna like, take him away, right? And so they wanna protect him because they think he's lost his mind. But the truth of the matter is, is, is here, Jesus is making a great point. He's sitting there and going, what truly makes a person a part of the family of God is evidence with what they do with the word of God. It's not what they profess. It's not what they say that they believe. Now, listen, 
what happens is when we repent of our sin and place our faith in God, he does a miracle. He changes your heart. He changes your nature. He places in there now new affections for God that you never had before and more hatred for the things of the world that you never had before. He places that. That's a part of that new creation. He does that. And that's an act of his mercy. Then you begin to, you're filled with the Holy Spirit and you begin to live out this Christian life in obedience, not because you're a good person, not because you're a great person, but because God has changed you by his grace and his mercy. And then what the Bible says is those things, when we apply, hear the word and apply the word of God, it will be evident to all that we're believers by what we do and how we obey what he says. Those who refuse to obey no matter how much they claim to be believers in Jesus Christ. Not perfectly. Listen to me carefully. Not perfectly. I don't want somebody to be able to run up and say, hey, I'm struggling in this particular area of sin, and now I'm doubting my salvation. I don't want to cause doubt to your salvation at all. What I want to do is twofold. I want to talk to the individual who claims and promises and has convinced himself that they're born again, but they do not follow after God. They have been deceived. You have deceived yourself. And I want to encourage believers in Jesus Christ of how essential it is for you and I to hear and to receive with joy the word of God and apply it in every part of our life so that we might be transformed in the image of Jesus Christ and that God may receive all the glory. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for this time. Lord, I thank you for a congregation who has listened and gone a little bit over. But God, I thank you so much that, God, that we could be spiritually spellbound by the truth of your word, not by a speaker, but by the word. That's clear. God, right now I pray that we will respond in faith to what we've heard.